responding to abortion is a gospel issue. We are here today because we believe the fight for life is a good fight, and we're in. We believe that legalized abortion is the greatest moral injustice the world has ever known. Now that may sound like inflammatory rhetoric to those who have only heard about abortion, but not to those of us who have seen it with our own eyes. Hello, I'm Mike Spencer, and this is Humanly Speaking, the podcast of Project Life Voice, a gospel-driven human rights ministry that equips and inspires pro-life ambassadors to speak compellingly and to act sacrificially on behalf of the most vulnerable among us, our pre-born neighbors targeted by elective abortion. Today, I want to share what I believe are the four primary biblical duties of the pastor in an abortion-infatuated culture. In so doing, I also want to respond to a few of the more common excuses for pastoral silence and then speak briefly to the current efforts of the abortion lobby to codify abortion into various state constitutions. Let me say at the outset that I am a pastor and I love the church. And although I've, I've devoted myself to full-time pro-life ministry and it's been 12 years since I've actively pastored, I am thankful for courageous and compassionate shepherds who cheerfully accept their biblical duty to give voice to the voiceless, who expose the evil injustice of abortion, and who equip their flocks to do the same. Now, I've had the privilege over these last 12 years of meeting many of these faithful shepherds, and it has been an absolute joy. But scandalously, shepherds like these are few and far between. The fact is, is that most pulpits in America are silent when it comes to defending the preborn from abortion. Although hard data is scarce, a 2015 Evangelical Alliance survey found that only 21% of evangelicals had heard abortion publicly talked about in their church that year, compared to 66% who heard their pastor preach about poverty and 50% about sex trafficking. A 2019 Pew Research survey found that even when abortion is mentioned in sermons, it is rarely the primary subject. In other words, it is generally mentioned only in passing by the pastor. A 2015 CareNet Ministries survey found that 26% of all women who have had an abortion identify as Protestant Christians and 27% identify as Catholic. One in three women were attending church at least once a month at the time of their first abortion. And 75% of those who had been surveyed indicated that the church had no significant influence whatsoever in deterring them from their decision to end their baby's life. Folks, Pastoral silence is killing children from our own churches and swelling the numbers of young mothers and fathers who are left to suffer alone in guilt and shame. If there's one refrain that I have heard repeated over and over again in these last 12 years, it is this, my pastor, my priest is a really good guy, but he won't speak about abortion. I cannot tell you the numbers of times I've had people come up to me after speaking in a, a workshop or speaking in a high school or a university setting and make that kind of a comment to me. My pastor, my priest is a great guy, really good guy, but he won't talk about abortion. And of course, I understand when people raise this complaint, they, they tend to do it with a little bit of uh, reluctance because they love their pastor, they love their shepherd, and they don't want to be speaking ill of him. But it's troubling them that their priest, that their pastor is silent on this subject. But of course, the real question we should be asking is not, is your pastor a good guy? 
most pastors are, but rather, is he a good shepherd? Because that's the biblical standard for godly pastoral leadership. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said this, quote, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the standard of what it means to be a good shepherd. And Jesus had uh, strong words for shepherds who refused to protect their flocks from predators. In fact, he called them hirelings. In John's gospel, continuing on in that same chapter, chapter 10, in verses 12 and 13, Jesus said this, quote, but a hireling sees the wolf coming and leads the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep." End quote. Pastors who are silent on abortion should know that many in their congregations, and I'm not talking just about hardcore pro-lifers, but rank-and-file Christians are frustrated and disappointed in many cases with their pastors. They are losing a degree of respect for these hushed shepherds, and their silence is costing them more than they realize. Unfortunately, when it comes to defending the preborn, there are many reasons or many excuses why so many pastors choose silence over faithfulness. I want to respond quickly to just four of these. So the first one is probably the more popular one, and that is the one that says, well, abortion is a political issue and therefore off limits for the church. Now, it's true in a strict sense that abortion is a political issue, but it is much more accurately described as a moral spiritual issue that has been politicized. And just because a moral issue is politicized does not render it off limits for the pulpit. Remember, Christ is Lord, and pastors seem to understand this in at least to the extent that they teach us how to behave sexually, how to manage our money, how to raise our children, etc. Shouldn't they also teach us how to vote? Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that the pastor turns his local church into uh, some sort of a political animal, uh, nor am I suggesting that he would, he would be telling people who to vote for and who not to vote for. But at the very least, he should be teaching them how to vote. Now, more could be said, but weighty moral issues like abortion, the legalized killing of little girls and boys, God's image bearers, should be given greater billing in the voting booth. Again, Christ is Lord of all. That means he's Lord of my sexuality, he's Lord of my money, he's Lord of my role as a father or as a husband, and he is Lord of my vote as well. Here's a second one, and that says this. Second excuse here for silence. Well, I'm committed to expository preaching, and so if it comes up in the message, sure, I'll address it then. Now, while there are obvious benefits to expository preaching, this often becomes the convenient excuse for silent shepherds to avoid the subject altogether. But the pastor who is truly committed to expository preaching and is faithful to the scriptures will end up speaking against abortion frequently since the subject of murder comes up dozens of times in God's word. And remember, abortion is just another method of murder. So we don't need the Bible to expressly state that you shall not have an abortion to know that abortion is wrong, any more than we need a Bible verse, as Francis Beckwith says, that says, thou shall not murder your neighbor with a pillow. These are just methods of murder, and we know the Bible clearly condemns the unjust shedding of innocent human blood. Now, moreover, the Apostle Paul didn't hesitate to confront the specific sins that threatened the health and the safety of his churches. He did this often, and he did this boldly. Here's a third excuse for pastoral silence. But my church is divided over the issue of abortion. Well, the pastor who presides over a church that's divided in this way should be asking himself the question, why is my church divided over whether or not it is right, morally right, to kill preborn children in their mother's wombs? 
I mean, imagine a pastor using this same excuse to remain silent because his church was divided over whether or not it was okay to kill toddlers. Well, that would be obscene. The pastor who remains silent in the face of this division, division over the subject of abortion, is not protecting unity. He is protecting division. Instead of remaining silent, he should be driving this division from the flock. That should become his calling. And he should press the issue in the pulpit until his congregation can join with the Apostle Paul as one voice in saying, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Let me just address one more for our, our purposes here. And that is the excuse that says, but I haven't yet earned the trust of my flock to speak to such a difficult or such a controversial issue. I actually heard this about a year ago. I had spoken at a conference in Fort Wayne for high school and college-age students. And uh, a friend of mine um, came to the event, a high school student, and brought a college friend of his along. And uh, I didn't have the chance to meet this uh, college student, but he apparently came to the event pro-life, but not necessarily passionate about the subject, but he left rather fired up. And he went home and met with his pastor and asked his pastor, Pastor, why don't you speak about abortion? Why don't you defend the unborn from the pulpit? To which um, the pastor responded uh, along these lines and said, well, I, I haven't yet earned the trust of my flock to speak to such a difficult or controversial issue. Now, I found out in uh, this conversation with this friend of mine who brought this college student along to this event that the pastor who was saying this had actually been in his pastoral role for five years and felt that that wasn't long enough to speak on a controversial issue like abortion. The shepherd earns the flock's respect by protecting them, not by abandoning the most vulnerable from among them to the abortionist's knife without so much as a whimper from the pulpit. Now, again, we could go on. These are just a few of the excuses that, that silent pastors hide behind. And their silence becomes an even greater liability for the unborn and for their young mothers, given the fact that there is a new threat confronting the church today. If the last five decades have taught us anything, it's that the purveyors of bigotry against our tiniest neighbors never sleep or slumber. For nearly half a century, Roe v. Wade clouded our national conscience, handicapped state and local efforts to protect preborn children, and lulled many Christians and many pastors into complacency. Roe's legacy is 63 million dead children and scores of mothers and fathers now saddled with a lifetime of guilt and regret, as well as scores of Americans whose hearts have been hardened against the preborn. Now, thankfully, Roe has fallen. But the battle against abortion is far from over. In response to the June 24th Dobbs versus Jackson decision and the pro-life trigger laws that, that effectively outlawed abortion in 13 states as a result, the pro-abortion lobby has adopted a new tactic, and that is passing state constitutional amendments intended to enshrine a so-called right to abortion through all nine, nine, I'm sorry, through all nine months of pregnancy into law. And passing these amendments has proven to be a highly effective strategy for the other side. Since the Dobbs ruling, three states, that would be Michigan, California, and Vermont, have passed pro-abortion amendments. In addition, three red states, Kansas, Montana, and Kentucky, tried to pass amendments to protect the right to life, to protect the unborn, and all three of those efforts failed. So that's a total of six states in one year that failed to secure lasting protection for the preborn. Now, energized by their success, the abortion lobby is right now working on introducing uh, amendments like these in 11 other states. 
here in my state, the state of Ohio, two pro-abortion groups, Protect Choice Ohio and Ohioans for Reproductive Freedom, just filed last week their amendment language with the Attorney General's office. And from now until July 5th, they will be canvassing our state here in Ohio, collecting the necessary 413,000 signatures needed to place this amendment on November's ballot. And those working to pass these amendments are heavily funded and well-organized. Uh, here in our state, they've devoted over $30 million to this effort. Now, this means that in 10 months, on Election Day, November 7th, every Ohioan, every professing Christian will answer the question, are God's image bearers in the womb worthy of our defense? Are they worthy of our gospel influence? Should mothers, and by the way, mothers uh, in the amendment, in this, this amendment that has been proposed, are referred to as pregnant persons, in keeping with woke uh, philosophy, should mothers have the right to kill their unborn children? For our constitution to be amended here in Ohio, only a bare majority of votes is needed. So 50% of the vote plus one vote could pass this amendment. And by the way, both pro-abortion groups that have come together for this effort have pledged to place this initiative back on the ballot in 2024 if they are unsuccessful this year. If this measure passes, this will immediately nullify all of Ohio's existing laws protecting the preborn, including Ohio's parental notification laws, which would therefore further endanger minors by allowing predatory adults to cover up or to kill the consequences of their sexual abuse. This amendment, if passed, will also eliminate legal requirements for abortionists to follow basic hospital health and safety standards. If this amendment passes this November, overnight, the state of Ohio will become one of the most radically pro-abortion states in the nation. Friends, this is where the battle is raging today. This is our Goliath. So what does this mean for the church? What does this mean for pastors? For the last two decades, we have heard a lot of talk in church planting and in church growth circles of the need to be relevant. We hear that word thrown around all the time. Now, this is a good thing. Of course, the church needs to be relevant. But ironically, many of these churches who are obsessed with being relevant ignore the most morally relevant issues of the day, namely abortion. Many pastors who are committed to a so-called seeker-sensitive ministry approach, which typically filters every ministry decision against how the church will be perceived by non-Christians, believe that this exempts them from obeying the duty to speak up for those who have no voice. But shouldn't we question the merits of a ministry philosophy that prevents shepherds from protecting their sheep? Furthermore, why are these so-called seeker-sensitive churches hiding the truth from those who are seeking it, especially on a matter with such dire uh, consequences? You see, withholding the truth from those who are seeking it isn't sensitive, it's cruel. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not, come, will not overcome it. This is his church. We're to build it his way. And the example that he set was one of speaking out against moral injustices and defending helpless children. I mean, do we think that we have a better plan to reach lost people than Christ himself? Eric Metaxas, in his wonderful book, Letter to the American Church, asks the question, quote, if we do not speak out against the, uh, the injustices that we see all around us, to what thin-lipped gospel do we think that we are leading anyone? End quote. It's a great question. You see, from an evangelistic standpoint, what a watching world really needs is to see local churches valuing that which Christ values. Only then should we expect them to take our gospel seriously. 
And the Apostle Paul set the parameters for true seeker-sensitive ministry when he wrote, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. We're to speak the truth in love and let God take care of the rest. There's a great deal of confusion today over what it means to be a truly pro-life pastor. Now, for many pastors, this simply means, well, I don't like abortion, or, well, my church gives $50 a month to the local pregnancy center. Given this confusion and the lethal threat that the abortion lobby continues to pose to the preborn, I want to address the question, what does it mean to be a distinctively pro-life pastor in an abortion-infatuated culture? And I want to share with you four primary pastoral duties of the shepherd in this kind of a, of a culture. Here's the first one. From the pulpit, the distinctively, truly pro-life pastor leads the flock in prayer for the preborn and for their young parents. It is criminal, brothers and sisters, that precious preborn children cannot even make it onto the prayer lists in so many of our churches. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. If we believe that the unborn child is, as the science of embryology tells us, a distinct living and whole human being, and if we believe that they are our unborn neighbors, then we should be praying for them in our churches on some sort of a regular basis. I mean, we pray in our worship services for the persecuted church, for victims of sex trafficking, for the homeless, and even for our enemies. We shouldn't be ashamed to pray for the least of these and for their young mothers. But if we won't love the unborn as our neighbors, can we not at least find it in our hearts to love them as our enemies? Again, Jesus commands us to love our enemies, to do good to our enemies, to pray for our enemies. Pastors and churches that are too ashamed or too embarrassed to even pray publicly for the preborn have, in essence, declared them unworthy of meeting even the low threshold of enemy status. Whereas the Nazi designation for Jews was life unworthy of life, for these silent pastors, the unspoken designation for the preborn seems to be life unworthy of mention, given the fact that they're, that they're not even prayed for in so many of our churches. Now, some pastors will attempt to spiritualize their cold hearts or their indifference by saying something like this, well, I think we should just pray for the preborn. Well, if your pastor says this, take him up on his offer. Just simply respond to them. Okay, pastor, how about we start Sunday? Will you lead us in praying for the preborn and for their young mothers, for the abortionist and his staff? We need to be praying from our churches. God honors those who honor him in this way. The second primary duty of the, the truly distinctively pro-life pastor in an, uh, in an abortion-infatuated culture is to teach the flock about human dignity so they can engage the culture persuasively. Those under our pastoral care live and travel in a world that says that there's nothing special, nothing exceptional about us as human beings. Atheist Richard Dawkins argues that we're nothing more than chemically sophisticated survival machines blindly programmed to preserve what he refers to as the selfish gene. His good friend, atheist Lawrence Krauss, opines, quote, we're just a bit of pollution. If you get rid of us, the universe would be largely the same. We're completely irrelevant, end quote. What a dismal and gloomy worldview. And yet this is, this is gaining traction everywhere we go today. And on top of this, technological advances continue to push the ethics envelope with biological challenges such as cloning, embryonic stem cell research, afterbirth abortion, and euthanasia. The biblical doctrine of the Imago Dei, once almost universally accepted, which holds that we are God's image bearers who are worth more than many sparrows, as Jesus said, is now castigated as speciesism on university campuses. A lack of doctrinal vigilance from the pulpit 
and a spirit of cultural retreatism in many of our churches are leaving many of our young people questioning the relevance of their own faith, or worse, abandoning it altogether. And if our churches will not work to restore moral sense and order, who will? Pastors cannot afford to assume that those in their congregations are going to somehow magically absorb a biblical view of human dignity and human worth. This must be taught if it's going to be caught. Responding to abortion and responding to these ballot initiatives that are popping up all over is a discipleship issue. And it's also an evangelistic issue. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the name J. Gresham Machen. He was the theologian who, uh, for practical purposes, single-handedly uh, took on theological liberalism at the turn of the last century on Princeton University's campus. And he said this, quote, false ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. We may preach with all the fervor of a reformer and yet succeed only in winning a straggler here and there if we permit the whole collective thought of the nation to be controlled by ideas which prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. End quote. And he's exactly right. Pastors need to teach their flocks why human life is so precious and inoculate them with sound biblical teaching against the hollow and deceptive philosophies that are washing over their flocks like a tsunami. By example, these shepherds need to inspire their flocks to defend all human beings at every stage of their development, any who are being targeted unjustly for death. I love the quote that is commonly uh, attributed to Martin Luther, although there's good reason to believe that it doesn't originate with him. But I love the quote anyway, and it says this, quote, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Again, he's exactly right. Legalized abortion is our Goliath as a church. Let me move to the third primary duty of the truly distinctively pro-life pastor in an abortion infatuated culture, and that is to fearlessly expose and to condemn abortion from the pulpit for the evil that it is. We have our marching orders laid out for us quite clearly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, quote, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, end quote. If you were to take the pastor's job description and boil it down to just two words, those words would be sheep protector. Now, granted, the pastor is a whole lot more than that. The, the pastor is a sheep provider, a sheep uh, feeder, a, a sheep comforter, and a whole lot of other things. But at, at his most fundamental, at, at the most fundamental duty of, of that pastor is to be a protector of the sheep. He is a sheep protector to protect the flock from slander, from gossip, from false doctrine, from false teachers, and from predators who masquerade as respectable doctors and prey on children from our own congregations. Pastor, it is simply dishonest to sport the pro-life label and yet remain silent even as children from your own flock are being killed. If you believe the preborn child is your neighbor, then your opposition to abortion must be more consequential than your opposition to eating broccoli. If you cannot point to specific sermons over the last three to five years where you have boldly defended the unborn and exposed the evil of abortion, then your pro-life convictions are nothing but thin veneer. 
signing up for the local baby bottle drive, uh, the local pregnancy care center baby bottle drive, or attending uh, pro-life banquets are great things. And I wish more pastors would do, do these things. I wish more churches would get behind these local pregnancy centers and support their ministries. But signing up for the baby bottle drive and attending pro-life banquets is, are, are no substitutes for bold biblical preaching against abortion. The pastor has a different job to do than the director of the local pregnancy center. Pastor, you are in an enviable position. Like police officers and firemen, you can save the lives of preborn children and protect parents from a decision that they might regret for a lifetime. But like police officers and firemen, you must have courage if you're going to do this. You know what abortion does to children and to their young mothers. And for this reason, your preaching must be disruptive in the best sense. You must blow Ezekiel's trumpet and thunder against this evil with such urgency and conviction that no one in your congregation is left wondering where you or God stand on this matter. Preach with such passion that your words reverberate beyond the four walls of your church so that everyone in your community will come to know that your church stands unashamedly for the weak and for the vulnerable. And that brings me to the last duty that I want to share with you, and that is that the truly distinctively pro-life pastor compassionately leads those who have had abortions or have been responsible for abortions to the one who died to forgive them. I know the conventional wisdom is that broaching such an emotional subject will only dredge up painful memories and inflict greater injury on those who have had abortions. But in reality, nothing inflicts greater injury than pastoral silence. The pastor who chooses silence over faithfulness communicates one of two destructive and regrettable messages. Either abortion is not so bad, or the gospel is not so good, or both. You see, when the pastor remains silent, those in his flock who have aborted their children or are considering doing so are left to conclude, well, my pastor speaks out against the sins of gossip, slander, and adultery, but feels no compulsion to speak against abortion, so it must not be a big deal. In this case, the pastor's silence communicates indifference at best and approval at worst, paving the way for more babies to die and for more mothers to be saddled with a lifetime of guilt and shame. The second regrettable message of pastoral silence, namely that the gospel is not so good, leaves others to conclude that the sin of abortion is so bad that my pastor can't even mention it from the pulpit. My sin must be unforgivable. I must have committed the unpardonable sin. In this case, Pastoral silence communicates condemnation and further alienates those who do regret their abortions, leaving them with no hope of escape from the cold and lonely prison of guilt and shame. This also suggests that Christ's atoning blood is an inadequate remedy for this particular sin. But in reality, it is only when abortion is exposed as sin and confessed as such that forgiveness becomes possible. 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. What sweet words. The truly pro-life pastor knows that loving innocent children and guilty adults are not competing interests. Convinced that the sin of abortion is no match for the grace of God, the truly pro-life pastor is not stingy with the gospel. He preaches hope and forgiveness through the spilled blood of Christ for those who've spilled the blood of the preborn. He delights in pointing those who've aborted their children to the one who promises, when the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. The pro-life pastor cannot imagine hiding such hope from those who are burdened down by the sin of abortion. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is like a fire shut up in his bones and he cannot keep it in. His teaching and his counseling ministry 
nurture a community where love and compassion are in full supply and where abortion becomes unthinkable, where sinners find real forgiveness and real freedom from the guilt and shame of abortion decisions. Abortion is evil because it kills precious preborn children. But the soul-cleansing gospel of Jesus Christ is beautiful because it provides forgiveness for guilty adults. Christ calls pastors to thunder from their pulpits both the sin of abortion and the grace of God. And the pastor who fails to fulfill either of these obligations fails to love as Christ has called him to love. You see, in the end, every pastor who claims to be pro-life must contend with the question, is the gospel the remedy for all sin or only for those sins that are comfortably exposed? In closing, Pastor, the abortion lobby is coming for the children under your pastoral care. This is your time to stand. There are over 380,000 churches in the United States today. Here in my state, the state of Ohio, there are over 13,000. And as heavily funded and as well organized as our opponents are, they will stand no chance of codifying abortion into law in my state or in yours if just 20% of shepherds, like you, will do what God has called them to do to expose the fruitless deed of darkness that we call abortion, and to lead their churches in defeating these monstrous ballot initiatives. Pastor, don't let the push to enshrine a so-called right to abortion in your state's constitution happen without the protest of your prophetic voice. God is looking for good shepherds like you who will stand in the gap. If you will faithfully discharge your pastoral duties, God will use you to grow a healthy church where abortion becomes unthinkable. Again, and where young couples find the love and the support that they need when they feel cornered by life circumstances. May God give you the courage and the compassion to meet this challenge and to do so with all the fire of a reformer. This has been Humanly Speaking with Mike Spencer. Thank you for listening.